Well, this morning we begin a brand new series engaging the Gospel of Mark. We're calling it the Gospel of Mark. (laughs) Racked our brains really hard on that one for a long time. We're digging into this earliest account of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ every Sunday until April 9th, Easter Sunday, if you'd like to plan ahead for your honey-baked ham. It's my hope and prayer that in doing so, we will be renewed in our commitment to being a Jesus church. There are a lot of different kinds of churches, right? If you've ever traveled on vacation, you've stopped into a church, well done, gold star, you may notice there are all kinds of different churches. There are churches that are big and small. There are churches that are red or blue. There are churches that are fun or serious. My hope is that we can continue to be, and even more so become, in the months ahead, a Jesus church, a church that holds high the person and the work of Jesus, that doesn't take ourselves too seriously so that we can take Jesus seriously, who he is, what he's done, and what he calls us to. All three of those are very clearly laid out in Mark's gospel, who he is, what he's done, and what he calls us to. And this morning, we, we start with who Jesus is, very clearly seen in just the first verse of Mark chapter 1. Jesus' identity is clarified in just the first few words. And identity, who we are as, as people, as individual persons, who we are is deeply significant for each one of us, right? Identity is at the, at the heart of who we are. One of my favorite books is by an author named Tish Harrison Warren. You've heard me quote her before. Um, th- her first book is called Liturgy of the Ordinary. And it's a kind of riff on Annie Dillard's line that how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And so Tish Harrison Warren takes that life and looks at a day in the life of an ordinary Jesus follower, thus the name Liturgy of the Ordinary. And so on the very first page she writes, whether we're children or heads of state, we sit in our pajamas for a moment, yawning every morning with messy hair and bad breath. We are unproductive, groping toward the day. Soon, we'll get buttoned up into our identities as mothers or business people, as students or friends or citizens. But as we first emerge from sleep every morning, we are nothing but human, unimpressive, vulnerable, newly born into the day, blinking as our pupils adjust to light and our brains emerge into consciousness. I love that image. I love the image of getting buttoned up into our identities. But first, we're just humans with messy hair and bad breath. How often we button ourselves up into a kind of particular identity of ways that we want to be seen in the world, the way that we want people to receive us. And so how important it is that Mark starts his gospel telling us not about our identities, but about Jesus's identity. Here, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, which is a strong way to start a story. Would you agree? I mean, this is a bold confession of Jesus's identity. 
There are a lot of great lead sentences in novels. If you're a reader, you know this. There's Charles Dickens, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, right? Um, Kurt Vonnegut starts his novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, with the line, all this happened, more or less. The Princess Bride starts with, this is my favorite book in all the world, though I have never read it. There's a lot of great lead sentences in literature. I think Marx is my favorite. He starts strong out of the gate, giving a bold theological confession that recalls the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. That's why he uses that term, the beginning, right? The beginning. Mark's implication is that just as there was a creation, there is now new creation bursting forth in Jesus. We don't have to wait until his death and crucifixion for this new life to emerge. It's already happening right here in verse 1. Now, to describe this new creation... Mark uses a particular word, one that's very familiar to us, but it might surprise you where it comes from. He uses the word gospel. That's what's translated as good news here. And he borrows that from the first century political sphere. Good news is the word gospel, which was used as a declaration of military victory. A gospel in the first century was when Caesar had captured new land and conquered new people. He would send out messengers, apostles, who would declare the gospel. Caesar has captured new land. He's conquered new people. And I think Mark intentionally repurposes this word to juxtapose our earthly rulers with the high king of heaven, with the Messiah, the son of God. Mark is trying to say, I know you're used to Caesar's good news. Jesus' good news is a little different. But Mark doesn't ask us to simply take his word for it. He highlights various sources to prove his point. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Son of God, but he doesn't just say, hey, this is how it is, believe it. He says, here's four different sources so that you can know that what I'm telling you is true. And if that first lead line is like a start of a great novel, the following verses have been compared to the opening of a great symphony. They set the stage for all that is to follow. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That's the first source here for Mark. He says, he's quoting Isaiah, but in the first century, you'd only name the most important reference. In truth, uh, Mark is quoting Isaiah and the book of Exodus and the great Italian prophet Malachi. <laughs> Thank you. A couple of you got that one. Think about it. There's a couple more. Okay, good. Malachi, yes. The last book in the Hebrew scriptures, also known as Malachi. They point forward to the one who would prepare the way. That's Mark's second source. So first he has the prophets. And the second source Mark alludes to is John the Baptist, who appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. The implication here is that all kinds of different people went out to John the Baptist in the wilderness. People who, who lived in the city, people who lived in the country, people who had a lot of money, and people who had a literal. Everybody is going out to see John the Baptist. 
confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, disciples were supposed to do anything for their rabbi that the lowliest servant would do. And the lowliest servant would have all kinds of menial tasks, but the one thing they would never do is to stoop down and untie their rabbi's sandals. That was considered the lowest of the low, and yet John says that he's not worthy of doing that. That he is even lower than one who would stoop down and untie the sandals of the one who would follow him. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Here's Mark's third source. A voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. At once, the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. So there's four different sources here in these first 13 verses of the Gospel of John. Uh, They're used by Mark to prove his point, to, to point the identity of Jesus. There is an allusion from the prophets. There is an announcement by John the Baptist. There is the affirmation in the voice of heaven and the acknowledgement of the evil one out there in the wilderness. And as we'll see, Mark's not only the shortest gospel account, he's also the fastest. Mark uses the word immediately 41 different times in just 16 chapters. Jesus and the disciples are constantly moving from here to there with cat-like speed and reflexes, right? It goes really fast through the gospel of Mark, though it will take us 32 weeks. And so Mark doesn't tell us all the details like Matthew and Luke and John sometimes He omits particular details in the story. During this same scene, for instance, Luke tells us that when John the Baptist was baptizing, there was Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod in Galilee and Philip in Interea. These are all first century rulers. And the reason Luke tells us about that is to juxtapose the gospel of Jesus with the gospel of these particular guys on the throne. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist has to explain that he's not the Messiah, nor is he Elijah, nor is he a prophet. In the Gospel of Matthew, John the Baptist tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. It's not right that I should baptize you, you should baptize me, but not Mark. Mark is like Sergeant Joe Friday, right? Just the facts, ma'am. And yet it's all there just the same. Because when Mark starts with the word beginning... He wants us to think about Genesis. He wants to think about the first creation so that we might see in Jesus a new creation. When Mark uses the word gospel, he wants us to think about Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and King Herod and all the warring ways of the world and to juxtapose that with the good news of Jesus who brings peace. When Mark tells us that John the Baptist was out at the Jordan It's meant to remind us of when God's people entered the promised land for the very first time. 
that after their exodus from Egypt and after their wilderness wandering, they walked through the Jordan into a land flowing with milk and honey. In this time, the Jordan River was considered uh, like a, a kind of border in a way, um, like the 1,200 miles of the Rio Grande between the United States and Mexico. But it was even more than a division between two nation states. Uh, the Jordan was a deeply spiritual and a symbolic boundary. It reminded God's people of the Exodus. And so for the whole Judean countryside, for all the people of Jerusalem to go out to him signals their desire and, and, and their kind of confession that they are in a sense of spiritual exile. That they might be in the promised land, but they don't sense the goodness of God's guidance like they once did. And so for them to go out to John the Baptist is to say that they're in spiritual exile and they need a new Exodus. And so John is reenacting what we see in the book of Joshua. Remember that book of Joshua? He didn't only fit the battle of Jericho. Um, Joshua also led God's people into the promised land through the Jordan. Chapter 3, he, he leads them through the Jordan in this deeply symbolic act. Tells them that God will go before them. And so when the people are leaving their homes in Judea, and walking out to John in the Jordan, they are walking through the Jordan River to meet John. They are making a 180 and looking back toward the promised land and being baptized on their way back in. Now this is really important. It's no mistake that that word repent that John the Baptist is telling them means to turn around, to change your mind, to think differently. And think about this. With their minds on Joshua remembering what Joshua did, bringing God's people into the promised land. With their minds on Joshua, who shows up but a new Joshua? We pronounce his name Jesus, but in Aramaic they would have said Yeshua, right? A brand new Joshua shows up to help God's people who are already in the promised land start living like they're in the promised land. There was the first Yeshua and there is the new Yeshua heralding a brand new exodus. And here's why this is so important for us to know. Um, Jesus does not merely notice John as he's sauntering or strolling by. This is the very first time um, that I've ever thought about this um, this week. And I had to confirm with Brian, who is an expert in the Holy Land. Um, from Nazareth to the Jordan River is a 30-mile journey. Jesus is not merely sauntering or strolling by and sees John the Baptist and says, hey, I'll join in the baptism. This seems like a good thing to do. Jesus is intentionally going to meet with John the Baptist and all the Judean countryside who are there with him. See, the one who had no sins to confess, the one who never succumbed to temptation, intentionally identifies with us. He joins us down in the waters of baptism. He joins us out in the desert of temptation. He takes a 30-mile journey to the spiritual and the symbolic border to communicate his association and his identification with us. And so Mark, alludes, or Mark has these four sources that allude to, that announce, that affirm and acknowledge the identity of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And notice what Jesus does. The first thing he does is to identify with us. Mark tells us that as Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, that heaven is torn open. 
It's a reference to Isaiah 64. Uh, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is a prayer that God's people would pray. Oh, God, that you would split apart the heavens and that you would come down to be with us. And Mark tells us that this is fulfilled in Jesus. That the heavens were torn open, that the skies were ripped apart, revealing the identity of Jesus. That in Jesus, all heaven is breaking loose. But notice, despite Jesus' identity, despite who he is as the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who brings all heaven breaking loose to us, Jesus' first action is to identify with us. Jesus goes down in the waters of baptism and out into the desert of temptation. Jesus identifies with our yawning, our messy hair, our bad breath, just waking up to the good news of God. Jesus identifies with us in our mess, in our need for a new exodus, in our need to make a U-turn and turn around and see things in a new way. Some of the earliest heresies of the church were opposite of the heresies we deal with today. Um, Today, people will often say, Jesus is just a good guy. And people have gotten confused and said that he was something more than that. But really, he was just a human, nothing else. But the earliest heresies in the church were the opposite. People denied the humanity of Jesus because they were so convinced of his divinity. In response, in the fourth century, there was an archbishop named Gregory of Nazianzus, and and he tried to correct they're thinking, he, he wrote this, for that which Jesus has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. For that which he has not assumed, he has not forgiven. For that which he has not assumed, he has not redeemed. In other words, if Jesus hadn't walked those 30 miles... If Jesus didn't go down in the waters of baptism, if Jesus didn't go out in the desert of temptation, experiencing humanity like the rest of us, would we have been healed? Would we have been forgiven? Would we have been redeemed? One of my lifelong best friends is a guy named Derek. Um, I grew up with Derek in Visalia and um, know him very well. And, and, And Derek has another friend named Travis, And I don't know Travis very well. I know Travis through Derek, but I've never had lunch with him or hung out just the two of us. It's always when there's, you know, other people around. Travis is more of an acquaintance than anything else. Do you have some people like that, you know? It was probably 15 years ago, not long after I began serving here at Good Shepherd, that I ran into Travis in my hometown at a coffee shop. And Travis said, I don't know if you have any friends like this, Travis said, Curtis, what's up, man? You have any friends like that? No, that's not the joke. (laughs) Curtis, what's up, man? He said, I was praying the other day, and you came to my mind. Do you have any friends like that? Anybody? I don't have a lot of friends like that. I was like, wow, that's that's incredible. Thanks. He says, no, I was praying the other day, and you came to mind. And I heard God saying to me, oh, yeah, Curtis, he is my son whom I love in him I'm well pleased. That, right, exactly. And I said, Travis, you're wrong. I recoiled. I was actually like kind of annoyed and, and, and a little bit angry. I was like, no, 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 Travis, you, you mistook that. You were reading Mark 1, and you confused me with Jesus. <laughs> it, that's, I, I, it's, 
It's an easy mistake to make, right? No, no, kidding, 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 kidding. But I was actually, I disagreed with him. I openly disagreed with him. I said, Travis, that's not right. That's not how it works. God doesn't say that about us. He said that about Jesus, not about me, but he was insistent. And I think about that conversation all the time. Probably once a week, maybe every two weeks, something prompts me to think about that statement from Travis. And I wonder a lot of things. I wonder how long he'd been in prayer before that happened. I I wonder how long he thought about that. I wonder if he's ever had that happen for other friends of his. Think about it all the time. And I do not have a Messiah complex, (laughs) but I have come to believe that it is true, what Travis heard. I've come to believe that Travis really did hear that from God that day. And I've also come to believe that I really needed to hear that from him. And I've come to believe that it's not only true about me, but it's true about you as well. That God looks at us and says, oh yes, yes, that's Carol, who is my daughter, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. Oh, yes, that's Mark. He is my son whom I love. In Mark, I am well pleased. I've I've come to believe that it's true, not only about me, but it's true about you too, and that it's not true because of anything we've done. In the same way it's said about Jesus before his ministry even begins. What has Jesus done before God pronounces that good news over him? Not a thing. See, it's not about what we've done but it's what Jesus goes on to do for us. And that because of what Jesus has done for us, God looks at us in the same way that he looks at Jesus. Because Jesus walked those 30 miles. Because as Jesus went down in the waters of the Jordan, that Jesus spent those 40 days out in the desert. What's more, that Jesus came down from the heights of heaven and took on human flesh. That Jesus, too, woke up with Messy hair and bad breath. See, that which has been assumed has been healed. That which has been assumed has been forgiven. That which has been assumed has been redeemed because of Jesus. And the good news of God is that those waters of baptism, we are united with Jesus. God's grace has claimed us. We are included in an identity that is truer than any other identity we could get dressed up into. And every day we wake up and we put on those identities. But the waters of baptism are meant to remind us of a truer, deeper identity we have in God. Martin Luther would teach the members of his community that they might regard their baptism as the daily garment that they are to wear all the time. Because Jesus, in his identity, Messiah, Son of God, meets us in our identities and reforms us and remakes us in his image. And when God looks at us, he sees us through the lens of this Jesus, whom he loves and whom he is well pleased. And so this morning, as we think about these first few verses of Mark chapter 1, where do you feel in exile Where, like those people in in Judea who who went out into the countryside, who purposely walked out to John the Baptist to do a 180 and to be reminded of the good news of God who brings his people out of exile and into Exodus, where are you experiencing a kind of exile? 
Where is there some sense of life that's not going the way that you wanted it to? Where do you need a 180-degree U-turn? Where do you need to be reminded of the waters of your baptism in which you were cleansed and commissioned to live a different kind of life? Is it in the challenges of a relationship? Is it in the difficulties of work? Is it in the busyness of life? The promise of Mark chapter 1 is that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, in his identity as both divine and human, he comes to meet us in the midst of our humanity, in the midst of our mess, with our messy hair and bad breath. Where do you need him to meet you this day, this week, this month? Remember, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And yet, as the great Dallas Willard once said, God has never transformed someone except in their actual daily life. God has never remade someone except in the actual life that they're already living. Where do we need that 180? Where do we need that U-turn? Where do we need to be reminded of the waters of baptism this morning? Hear the good news that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, meets us there. And so, God, we claim that promise this morning. We claim that promise that you have communicated through the inspiration of your spirit to Mark so long ago that Jesus meets us in our mess. And Father, we all experience different messes of different kinds. We wake up with different identities and try to hide in particular ways. But we ask this morning, in a brief moment of silence, we pause and just confess to you where we're at. The exile we feel and the exodus we need. We lift up to you those places we need that 180 degree U-turn. Places we need to be reminded of the waters of baptism that have cleansed us and commissioned us. So in this moment of silence, God, would you hear our prayers now? as we lift them up to you. Father in heaven, we give you thanks not only for your creation, but for new creation, that you were at work bringing new out of the old. We give you thanks for the gospel, not that you capture and conquer, but that you compel us unto yourself with love and mercy and grace. We give you thanks that because of Jesus, you look at us and you see us as your sons and your daughters, whom you love, in whom you are well pleased. We know this is not of our own. This is the gift that you have bestowed upon us through the good news of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone whom we worship. Would you receive our praise this morning as we respond to that good news? Amen.